Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. I feel the Lord tonight. I feel like, oh, I don't want to rush past him. I want to preach to you guys, but I also want to make sure that we're always, we're giving space to the one who we came for, yeah? Well, you guys just um, close your eyes, hold out your hands. Let's just receive from him. You know, there's breakthrough tonight. Yokes are going to be broken tonight. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't big talk. This is the kingdom of God. Yokes will be broken and removed. And, and I want you to receive your breakthrough. If you don't know how to do that, just hold out your hands and say, God, I'll take it. I'll take whatever you have for me. Receive whatever he has, not in part, but in full. Listen, he's looking for hungry people to fill. And he'll pass up a million satisfied people to find the one hungry person. So, God, pick me. Pick me tonight. The reality is that he's here and his angels are surrounding him. He's in the room. We don't have to go looking for him. We don't come here to go through the motions. We come here for you, Jesus. And so we come here to meet him. Our fear leaves. Our agendas leave. And say it out loud. Look him in the eyes and say, pick me tonight, God. Pick me tonight. Say this out loud. God, I'm open to whatever you want to do tonight. Say this. I pursue whatever you're doing. Your glory rests upon me. This is a big deal. This is a big deal to pause, to, to the Bible would call it Selah to wait until you find him, to not rush past him. You, you know this, you're a reunion church. I've told you this and you've heard this from the platform, but you're not here for a sermon. You're here for a person. And I want to honor him. I want to honor him. We just made a throne for him for 45 minutes and we just want to honor you, Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Thank you that we get to enter into your sanctuary tonight, that we get to give you the whole room, every heart, Every mindset, it's yours. And so kingdom come and will be done in this church. And you are the church in these people. Have your will. Have your way. Pick us tonight, God. Amen. Guys, I need to make a very quick announcement. What did you say, Gary? An announcement and then a pronouncement? That was, that was good. That is stolen. I'm going to steal it. I guess the pronouncement is that the tomb is empty. And I don't know if you, you read the last page, but we win. We've already won. It's finished. It's over. He's given us every good spiritual gift so that we can be more than conquerors now. Did you know that? This is really good. These are pronouncements that we should probably pronounce all the time. Um, he's healer. He's the bright morning star. He's the bomb of Gilead. 
He runs to find us. He leaps over mountains and streams just to hear our voice. His understanding is unfathomable. He's perfect in every way. There's not a shadow within him. That's your sermon, the end. <laughs> These are good things. We just need to focus on him. The announcement I need to make is, um, so many of you know that um, last, was it last week? Two weeks ago, we sent off Rachel Morley, who had been leading our worship department for many years, and um, we didn't just leave a gaping hole there. Uh, we've actually had some things put into motion for several months now where we were bringing people um, into new roles. We're not trying to find someone to fill Rachel's role. We're actually, uh, we've partnered with the Lord and said that we're actually creating new roles because um, the thing that Rachel was called here to do has, has completed. And so now we have new roles with some new people. And I just want to um, let you guys know who those people are. So Kristen, wave your hand if you're in here. Kristen, who just closed worship. Kristen is going to be overseeing our worship teams. Uh, She's the pastoral worship overseer, officially. That's the title. Uh, Where her job is going to be a lot of the pastoring and shepherding of the worship community. Um, And our worship community is growing. It's bigger than what you just see on Sundays. We have some other outlets that we're um, putting worshipers in. Uh, We also have Nate and Jess. Are you guys in the room? There's Jess. Nate. Nate was playing acoustic tonight. Jess was leading. Um, Nate and Jess are going to be the team coordinators, so they're in charge of the practicals, the day-to-day and day-of type stuff when it comes to worship. So um, this is is the way that we're moving forward. We feel the Lord just all over this. I couldn't be more excited. We had a, a meeting this week just talking about the vision that the Lord has for the, the musical worship side of our church. And I, I didn't want to hang up. I kept saying, I don't want to like steal this meeting, but I just have so much. I feel like the Lord is doing and going to, going to say about, um, the worship here. So get ready. It's a new season. It's a beautiful season. And if you see them, just congratulate them on their promotions. Can I read the word to you guys? I'm going to read you, um, several verses and I want to see if you can, catch the common thread of these verses. So here's a very familiar one that we've, that's really part of the heartbeat of our church. It's Psalm 27, four. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The next verse, in that day, The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Isaiah 28, in that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. Isaiah 33, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Here's a great passage, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, 
to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Why does he give a crown of beauty? It's because he's beautiful. And then let's finish here in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see the, the, the string that's holding these verses together? It's that he's beautiful. He's beautiful. And he makes everything beautiful in its time because he is beauty. He is beautiful. And what we know this, when we behold him, we become like him. He's beautiful. He's more beautiful than the most beautiful painting. He's more beautiful than the most awe-inspiring sunset. He's perfect. He's perfect. And for those who have seen him, nothing compares. Did you hear me? For those who have seen him, nothing compares. Do you agree? It's, it's shocking to me then why so often we try to add to the simple beauty of the Lord. He doesn't need anything added. He's already the most beautiful. He's already the most precious. He already has the most worth. And if we convince ourselves into thinking that we need to add anything into his perfect beauty, then I don't know if we've actually seen him. I was contemplating taking a trip this, this summer, and um, the plans got canceled. So I, saw, I said, well, maybe I'll just go on an excursion to someplace I've never been. So I was pulling up national parks because I've never been to too many of them. And I thought, hey, the Grand Canyon, I've flown over it, but I've never been there. And I've heard it's pretty astounding. And I just started researching the Grand Canyon. And it, I was thinking, when people go to the Grand Canyon, again, this is one of the greatest spectacles of nature in the US, right? When people go there and they look upon its majesty and they gaze upon its beauty, and they stare into this vast canyon, the sheer size, the National Park Service isn't sitting there thinking that, hey, we need to add a strip mall here in case people get bored. They're not, they don't think that way. Nobody in the National Park Service is contemplating adding a bowling alley on the edge of the Grand Canyon in case the visitors need something better to do. What they do is they actually protect the land around the Grand Canyon so that none of that stuff can ever come there. The whole point of the Grand Canyon is to go and to stand in awe of its beauty. That's why you go to the Grand Canyon. It's to marvel at its nature. It's to marvel at its size. I need you to hear this. The whole point is to stand in awe. It's to stare at its beauty. It's to meditate on the grandeur of this thing in front of you. Do some people get bored doing that? Of course. To some people, it's, it's just a big hole in the ground and they think, why would I go look, pay thousands of dollars to travel and go look at this big hole? And technically, they're correct. It is a big hole in the ground. But listen, beauty is wasted on those who don't appreciate beauty. Yes, some people will get bored standing more than two minutes looking at the Grand Canyon. And yes, some people will demand movie theaters and 
pizza huts to be added there for their convenience. But listen, you've never once heard of the National Park Service gathering and saying, you know, we should cater to the bored tourists. We should, we should cater towards the ones who don't actually appreciate it. No, what they do is they cater toward those who do appreciate the beauty of the Grand Canyon, right? They never worry about if people stop coming to the Grand Canyon because the National Park Service recognizes that the point isn't convenience. They recognize that the point isn't being preoccupied with secondary distractions. They recognize that the point isn't to avoid boredom. In other words, the National Park Service knows that the point is not to cater to man. It's, it's actually set up to cater to the canyon to protect its space, to make sure it's untarmed, um, that no one lays its hand on it. And what they do is they give people access to that point of interest, not try to make the, the site more interesting. They understand that the canyon is the goal and that staring at the canyon is why people come. And the National Park Service knows that those who value the canyon will come and see what they've come to see. The job isn't to convince people to come. Have you ever seen a commercial for the Grand Canyon? I haven't. And yet people year after year after year after year go and they don't have to sell it at all. The job of the Park Service is not to cater to people with no appreciation for it. They actually cater to people who do have appreciation for it. And when the people who do care, when they come, when they come in, uh, to the canyon, they'll spend hours gazing into it. They'll spend hours delighting in the canyon itself. Do you, do you see where I'm going? The reason that the National Park Service does this is because it wants to magnify the object that people are coming to see. They don't build the bowling alleys and the movie theaters. They build things that make appreciating the canyon easier. Do you understand? The only thing that the National Park Service has added are things that magnify the canyon itself. So in other words, you, you see those big tower binoculars that you can look at and the telescopes. They put those there so that you can see the canyon better. They, they add benches so that people are able to rest and meditate on its beauty. They add maps along the edge of the canyon so that they can show these and explain these points of interest in the canyon. In other words, they want people to help understand the nuances of the canyon that they're here to see. They add hiking trails so that people can safely go into the canyon instead of forging their own way. The only thing that the, the National Park Service invests in are things that bring people into experiencing and understanding the thing that they're coming to see better. The only thing added to the Grand Canyon are things that increase the focus on the canyon. Are you with me? Okay. I think you understand this, that adding distractions actually makes things less beautiful. And adding distractions actually makes things less appealing. When we try to add secondary things, distractions, things to keep people from getting bored, what happens is the focus actually comes off of the thing that they're actually there to see. 
When the Grand Canyon doesn't have bowling alleys and strip malls, there's only one thing for people to look at. But when you start adding distraction, it actually fights, it competes for your attention, it competes for your affections, and it draws you away from that thing. So again, I wanna tell you that he's beautiful. He's very beautiful. He's the most beautiful. And he doesn't need any help trying to make him more beautiful. Our efforts to increase his beauty makes things less beautiful. Our distractions make him less attractive. Our distractions make him less fulfilling. And he doesn't want our help. What he wants is for us to be focused on the one thing. And I was so happy to walk in during pre-service prayer and see that slide up that tonight we're just praying about the one thing. Can you put that slide up there? I don't want to read through it, but I'll give you 10 seconds just to to look at that pre-service slide. He wants us to remain focused on the one thing that we actually came to see. This isn't a test. I, I do want another this isn't a distraction. This, this is part of it. He wants us to remain undistracted, so we pray for that. He doesn't want us to try to add anything to his simple beauty. He's unmatched. And so we're not going to add anything to it. You can take that down. He wants our undistracted focus. He wants our unfiltered message. And so it doesn't change. We come before him without distraction, without adding things to our gatherings that take the focus away from him. We don't worry much what happens if people might get bored. And over the past year and a half, I think that's part of the beauty of what uh, we've been seeing here is, is just the willingness to throw out agenda because he is the agenda. We make him, we put him in his rightful place as the agenda, as the thing we're here to see and not a thing. You get what I'm saying though. He is the Grand Canyon. And, and we put ourselves in a position where we're not caring if anyone else comes and joins in because we want him to join in. That is the victory. That is the success. And when you go to the Grand Canyon, do you care if there's hundreds or thousands of others staring at this giant canyon with you? Or are you just there for the canyon? We've lost focus. Sorry, we've lost our concern for any focus other than him. For anything other than lavishing him with our affections. And listen, we'll remain steadfast in this one thing. It's, it's Psalm 27, 4, that we will not change this, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord, that we will behold his beauty because he's beautiful, that we will meditate in his temple and then hide in his secret place. And in the same way that we wouldn't want to add something to the Grand Canyon, we're certainly not going to try to add something to the one who made the Grand Canyon. He's the reason we're here, not to play church. And listen, you're not going to find a whole lot of filtered messages here. You're not going to find the smoke machines. You're not going to find the laser shows. Some of you don't know this, but this is a huge screen on the the wall behind us that we don't even turn on. It's available. We could do it. We could put up the, the pretty ocean background and the clouds, and there's nothing wrong with that. But listen... 
Production is not bad, but we've seen the authentic, and we're not interested in adding a bowling alley to the Grand Canyon. Why add a smoke machine when, when we've seen the actual cloud of the Lord manifest itself? I, you know, I don't want to have confusion. Was that God or was that a smoke machine? It's probably a smoke machine, if you're wondering. We've seen his actual glory manifest. We've seen the miracles of people getting out of wheelchairs. We've seen the miracles of cancer falling off of bodies. Why put a peaceful ocean on this giant screen behind us when we have access to the Prince of Peace? Is showing cool graphics on a screen for us or for him? There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying that's bad, but listen, do we not have access to him? Do, are we not seated in heavenly places where we have full access to his beauty and delight? This is actually less than. So much of what I think the corporate church majors on are things that we think the Lord needs help with. And listen, he doesn't need our help. He's really, really good at his job. And I'm okay having a church that is willing to, to stare at him for hours, at his beauty and his majesty. Guess what you're going to be doing for eternity? Uh, I, I feel the Lord tonight. He's here. He's willing to move. He's willing to heal. He's willing to, to deliver. He's willing to bless. He's willing to impart. I just think, and I, I wanna, I'll just mention this very, very briefly, um, but recently... Uh, I had a, a, an opportunity to pray to raise the dead. And this wasn't like because I saw an Instagram post and, hey, let's all pray. No, this was like heat of the moment type stuff. And what's more important for preparation for that? Smoke machines that can cause a cool vibe and keep us entertained? Or week after week after week abiding in the glory of the one who holds the keys to life and death? Okay, this isn't a drill. You're not here to play church. You're here to be the church. This has to be about getting equipped so that you can walk forth and so that the kingdom can come and his will is done on earth, on Oahu as it is in heaven. Can I read some more scripture to you? I'll actually get to the sermon now. There's a, a story about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm going to read you the Mark account of Jairus' daughter. Um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna skip the part in the middle. It's this story is interrupted. It's kind of sandwiching uh, the story of the woman who had the issue of blood. And just for time's sake, I'm gonna skip past that. But let's uh, get started here in Mark chapter five. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And then there's several, quite a few verses about the story of the woman who had the issue of blood. And then this is how the story of the woman of the issue of blood ends right here. It says, while he was still speaking to this woman, they, the, the synagogue leader's servants, um, came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. 
That's one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture. Only believe. Some translations, just believe. Just believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And in Matthew, the, the verse there says they saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not done, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. Okay, there's several things I want to note about this lengthy passage. Um, I always wondered, why did Jesus get so mad and kick out the people who were mourning? And again, in the Matthew verses, it calls them flute players. And the actual word there is minstrels. And it says these flute-playing minstrels were making a noisy disorder. It's important to remember that when the Holy Spirit inspired man to write the Holy Scriptures, he didn't make mistakes. He didn't tell people to add things in there and just, oh, don't worry about that. That's not important. No, it's all important. Scripture mentions this for a reason. Here in Mark 5 and a few other places in Scripture, um, we see that wealthy Jews and Gentiles both would intentionally hire minstrels and these professional mourners. That's what they were. They were professional mourners when a family member died. They were actually hired to weep and wail and moan and make a, a noisy distraction. And listen, these professional mourners were hired as a sign that the grief of the family members was bigger than what the family could express on their own. In other words, the, the family's grief for that lost loved one was so big that they needed others to help carry that grief. That was the whole mentality behind this. And the intention of these minstrels, these professional mourners, was to try to get others into joining in their grieving. Again, the grief was too big just for the family to carry, so they needed these minstrels to try to get everybody to help carry that burden of grief. So these professional mourners, these minstrels, these flute players, they would compose songs about the dead, and they would honor the person's age, their beauty, their strength, their, their conquests, their, their courage, their, all the things, their virtues, the actions of their lives. But this wasn't pretty little ditties they were writing for fun. What they were doing, these professional mourners were hired to demonstrate, and I'm quoting what they do, frantic, violent grief. So these mourners, would, they, they would tear their hair out as a sign of ultimate grieving. They would weep and how, and some of them would cut their flesh as a sign of grief. And again, the aim of this was to try to get others to join in on their grieving. Part of the reason that the Jews, at least, would hire these professional mourners was that because according to the law, Jews were forbidden to cut their hair. And Jews were forbidden to cut their flesh in mourning for the dead. So they would hire these people to have these outrageously over-the-top expressions of grief that would be off-limits according to the law that the Jews were trying to, 
to live by. The other reason why they would, the Jews would hire the, the minstrels were because they didn't want others to think that they didn't have hope that their family member would be resurrected. So they would get other people to do the, the main burden of grieving because they wanted people to know, well, I have hope for the resurrection, but there's still this much grief that needs to be carried. Does this make sense? And it's the, these two interesting ideas that the grief is bigger than this family can carry themselves, so I'll hire mourners to do this. And the other thought is, but I don't want people to think I don't have hope for eternal life, so I'll make other people do the mourning for me. A lot of the Jews and the Gentiles at that time actually didn't believe in eternal life. It was more of a cultural belief system for a lot of them. And so some of them actually didn't have hope to ever see their dead relatives again. Do you see why when Jesus came into the room, he purposefully used the verbiage that this girl was only asleep and not dead? Do you see why that's important in this circumstance? Do you see why he's, he's wanting to demonstrate what he actually brings into the room when he shows up? But I guess we can also see why they laughed at him. They were professionals. This is their job is to go to funerals. They see dead people all the time. It's helpful, you know, knowing this kind of thing when you see verses like 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It gives a lot more meaning when, when Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He doesn't call them dead. He uses the same word Jesus does. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest of those who do not have hope. When people hired these, these minstrels, these professional mourners, one of the reasons was actually a legal reason. It served as evidence that the death had actually taken place. It was kind of like they are dead. We're, we're letting people know that it's official. They're gone. It was this proof and this confirmation of death, and it marked the finality of death overtaking them. Again, do you see why Jesus purposefully used the verbiage that she's only asleep and not dead? Because it literally went against what they were there to proclaim was that she is dead. And he's saying, mm, she's just asleep. We don't grieve the way that you guys grieve. In those days, um, this mourning happened at the moment of death and it lasted straight through to the funeral. And most of the time, the funeral happened that day just because of the preservation techniques and stuff. The mourning started at the death and, and began at that moment and it didn't cease until the burial. And remember, the desire of hiring these pro-mourners was to influence people to join in the pain. To say like, hey, look at this grief. It's too big. You need to carry this with us. And to influence people into partaking in grieving over death. And we learn in this story when Jesus comes in, it says he put them all out. All of these professional minstrels, these mourners. And he only allowed the girls, mom, dad, and then Peter, James, and John to remain in the room. I think this helps us understand in the story why Jesus comes and, and makes everyone leave. Because what were they doing? What were they honoring in that room? What were they, they mean, celebrating is a bad word, but I'll use it. What were they celebrating the finality of? Of death. What was their focus? Death. 
So this is fascinating because in my mind, it would make more sense to have Jesus keep the mourners in the room to see the miracle themselves, to show them like, hey, listen, this is who I am. This is my divine power and display. Go ahead and weep and mourn, but watch as I get this girl up. No, he doesn't do that. He tells them, get out. He orders them to leave. And, and so the question has to be, why? I want you to see this. Ask the Holy Spirit if you need to. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to me in this story. Jesus kicked certain people out who didn't have faith. He kicked people out who didn't have faith. He made them leave. He made the ones whose focus was death and loss and mourning and influencing others to, fo- influencing others to focus on the sting of death. He made them leave. Jesus didn't actually make them miss the glory of God coming in the room. It was their hearts that caused them to miss the glory of God coming into the room. Jesus understood when he arrived in that room that the wrong people were in the room. And he makes them leave. And it's worth noting he doesn't kick them out of town. He doesn't send them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't tell them to go back to their houses. He just makes them get out of the room. And these weren't ginormous mansions. These weren't huge houses. He simply made them get out of his presence and in these tiny little houses of that time period, making them leave, making them get out, probably just meant that they moved about 10 to 20 feet outside of the vicinity where he was standing, closer than you and I are seated right now. They were likely on the other side of a very thin wall, probably could still hear everything going on in that room. They they'd probably still be required to stay until the burial, the, the ceremony that night. And yet, it seems like the miracle required them leaving the room. That's really interesting. Jesus requiring them to leave seems like that's what allowed him to do what he was sent to do. And we say, wait a minute, God is sovereign He can do whatever he wants. And you're right. Um, It's not like he couldn't have raised the dead with those professional mourners in the room. God is not limited to man's cooperation, but he does love it. He does seek it out. And God isn't limited to man's doubt, but he does restrain himself biblically a lot of times based on their doubt. So you got to understand that these mourners were still in close proximity to Jesus, but they weren't in his presence. They were outside. You can be in close proximity to him, but not have intimacy with him. So think about this. Jesus comes and he shifts the spiritual atmosphere in the room. That's not churchianity talking. That's actuality talking. He shifts the atmosphere and he removes those whose hearts was focused on distraction and death and loss and mourning and all that stuff. Because there was something about removing that from the room that was required to change the atmosphere. He needed to demonstrate that he was the way, the truth, and the life, the life specifically in this case, and that he needed to prove that he is the resurrection. And he was unwilling to do it with those people in the room. That's wild. Listen, there wasn't anything wrong with the room in which this happened. There was something wrong with the hearts that were in the room previously. And so he removed them. The room was right, but the hearts were wrong. And and all that to say, guys... You know this. You know this. I know that you know this. He is the point. He is our reason. 
He is our destination. He's beautiful, and we, we don't have any intention of adding a bowling alley to the Grand Canyon. The ones who are hungry for him will find him. The Bible's very clear about that, that the one who seeks him will find the Lord, and it doesn't matter what the room is like. It's the ones who have clean hands and a pure heart that will see him. They will see him. That's a promise. There's only one person who satisfied, who satisfies. There's only one person who is our delight. And I, this is kind of a, in a short sermon tonight, but I just feel like he's saying like, hey, let's just repent. Let's just have a time of repentance because I feel like there are some of us who are still holding on and looking for that bowling alley. Where distraction still has, even if it's 1%, it still has a percentage of our focus. It still has this this blip on our radar of where's, where's the bowling alley? A strip mall, a, a pizza parlor, they're a terrible substitution for the beauty of the Lord and the splendor of his, his might. We have to repent. We have to turn our, mo- our mindsets to, to be focused on him and him alone. Um, we will not idolize attention spans. We won't. In Genesis 15, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, we won't read it right now, but it's this beautiful story where God covenants with Abraham and he makes the walk of blood while Abraham's asleep. Uh, he makes this walk of blood for Abraham. It's supposed to be a two-party covenant, but God does the whole thing by himself and this m- miraculous uh, smoking fire pot and a torch make the walk and it's, it's representative of God and Jesus. And... Um, Previous to Mo, uh, Abraham falling asleep and God making this walk of blood, he had, he had made this sacrifice of these animal carcasses and birds that he had slaughtered and laid out so that he would make this covenant with the Lord. And after he made this act of worship of slaughtering these animals, this sacrifice to the Lord, it says that the vultures came and were trying to seize the sacrifice that Abraham had made for God. And Abraham has to get up and he has to drive the vultures away so that they couldn't get the offering that he had laid out for them. I think this is a picture for the believer's need to contend in worship against distraction and against the hosts of hell because they can be resilient and they can be intimidating. And and there has to be this, not in a fearful way, but a constant protection required to preserve the place of sacrifice. Nothing gets to touch this. Nothing. Again, I I, I will not take a moral stance on this. I don't think that smoke machines and lasers are morally wrong, but I do know that they are distracting. And if we have invited distraction into any part of our secret place, we have to repent. We have to repent. Do you guys have a secret place with the Lord? a certain time or a certain place that you go to be with him? I'm, I'm just going to be very practical with you. Do you take your cell phone with you? Are you within reach of the TV remote? Do you have your computer screen open as you're doing that? Because I'm telling you, even if you're like, oh, that doesn't impact me, it, it's, it's a bowling alley. We have to. We have to. And I'm not just talking about Sundays. We have to protect that sacrifice, that offering that we're giving him. Because those vultures will come and they will impact the anointing.
Let's, let's do this. Can you guys stand? I want to pray for us as we have this time of repentance. You know, this repentance by definition is not necessarily this heavy thing, this, this weeping and wailing. That's what the professional mourners were asked to do. And I'm not saying that can't be part of repentance, but I actually think that the Lord gets really, really excited when we say no more to this thing and we repent, we turn our minds to see things from his perspective, to turn and say that, oh, that's how he sees things. That's what we're doing right now. And let me tell you, there's blessing, there's reward, there's joy, there's favor attached to that. Repentance brings the blessing of the Lord into our lives. So Abba, Father, thank you for your perfect beauty. Thank you that you are the beautiful one, that you're matchless. You're beautiful beyond compare. And we repent for any part of our lives where we've tried to add to your perfect beauty. Yeah, let him highlight things to you. That he's saying like, oh, this, this is the thing. This is the distraction right here. Holy Spirit, convict. And so just in your spirit, I just want you to shove all of those things off of the altar. They don't have place there. Nothing gets to go on the altar other than our worship, other than our unfiltered praise. Father, give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart that we may see you rightly. That this is a church of unfiltered worship. That your glory is unfiltered in this place. You can have our hearts. You can have our minds. You can have our stomachs. You can have our agendas. You can have our jobs. You can have our families. You can have it all. Nothing, nothing gets to come and sit on this altar other than the sacrifice. So we bless you, Jesus. Thank you that you're holy. Thank you that you are righteous. Thank you that you are pure so that we become pure. And so we behold you to become like you. Show us the glory of your face. Show us the likeness of your being. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will do. Abba, Father, Rafa, Jehovah Jireh, Nisi, Sidkenu, thank you for providing for every single need that humanity would ever have. And it's not just set up in a treasure chest buried at the bottom of the ocean. No, it's in you. Everything, every need, Everything we'll ever need in our entire lives is found in your nature, in your goodness, in your purity, in your holiness. And so come, bright morning star. Burn up what needs to go. Take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. We receive everything that you have for us tonight, God. Everything you have. Break off bonds. Break off chains. Break off yokes to things that we've yoked ourselves with unequally. And we just say, no, no longer. We yoke ourselves to you. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You actually carry us in that yoke. You actually said that your angels lift us up so that our feet won't strike a stone. That your angels lift us up so that we tread upon the lion and the cobra. We're in your hands and we're protected. So righteous one. 
Glorify your name at reunion. Glorify your name in our homes. Glorify your name at our jobs as we're driving. Glorify your name in this place. Glorify your name on Oahu as it is in heaven. We won't rest. We won't rest. Kingdom come. We'll be done. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.